0: precious Lord Jesus gracious sweet Holy Spirit we thank you for choosing to live within us that it is your presence that I hope and pray is our most valued possession it is beyond comprehension that you would choose to live within your people that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us. It is your very presence that I hope that we value to the utmost a relationship with you that we would treasure and cherish and cultivate. And as we open up our Bibles this morning, as I hope that you feed the people through me, Use that to deepen our love and our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are grateful. Please speak through me, Holy Spirit, to bring glory to the Father and the Son and to yourself, to build up your church, to equip your saints for the works of service that you have planned for us. For we indeed are your craftsmanship, Your work, created in Christ Jesus, for good works that you have planned beforehand that we might walk in them. Be glorified this morning once again, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we continue our series on God's chosen fast, I'm going to ask you to get your Bibles out. Turn to Matthew chapter 9, verses one 17 verses 1 through 17. I want you to strap yourselves in. We're going to dive into the Word of God, and I hope that you are encouraged. I hope that you are challenged, and I hope that perhaps the Spirit will convict you as well. Now, I've been here for just about four years, and everywhere I go, it seems like there is always relationship problems. I would say that one of the things that we had to adjust to as a family coming uh, to the Pacific Northwest, apart from the fact that uh, it's just so beautiful here, but is the fact that there was a a larger number of dysfunctional families that we discovered. I know that we kind of came in a little small closed environment in a small town in conservative northeast Indiana, but... Uh, there were still some dysfunctional families there as well. And what I mean by a dysfunctional family is a, a, a divorced family. I know divorce is painful, but I just wanted to begin this morning by talking about really uh, compatibility, and, or rather, incompatibility. Um, I want to start, though, with something funny, if you can, with talking about divorce. While as painful as divorce may be, there still is some things that uh, you can get out of it. Um, Lenny Clark said this, so I can't get divorced because I'm a Catholic. Catholics don't get divorced. They stay together through anger and hatred and festering misery, just like God intended. This unknown source said this, I married Miss Wright, I just didn't know that her first name was always. Joyce Brothers said this, my husband and I have never considered divorce. Murder sometimes, but never divorce. Now, most of us, unfortunately, have some experience with divorce and its painful consequences. I mean, you may be divorced, uh, your parents may be divorced, or your friend's parents have divorced. For whatever reason, the marriage just didn't work out. And to avoid divorce, what do we do? Well, we now turn to the internet, into online dating to find that compatible future spouse. Uh, eHarmony. I'm sure you're familiar with that. I researched this this week, and it turns out that eHarmony was founded by a a Christian. Uh, In August 22nd of 2000, Dr. Neil Clark Warren, an American clinical psychologist, he's a Christian theologian from Princeton Seminary and a professor at that seminary, he says eHarmony uses relationship science to match single-sinking long-term relationships, It provides users with compatible matches based on 32 dimensions of personality compatibility traits that, listen to this, are scientifically proven to predict highly successful long-term relationships. Now, how has this approach fared? Well, in 2016, eHarmony claimed that it matched two million couples. And that have led those two million couples have led to marriages, but still they, they surveyed twenty thousand people in two thousand sixteen. Roughly four percent, or you know roughly about eight hundred or so of those two million or twenty thousand people surveyed are ending in divorces. Well, if you take that rate over a two million period, just using four percent, which is a conservative number, that's still over eighty to hundred thousand people that have are getting divorced. And the reality is this, is that even compatibility-based marriages are not immune to the disease of divorce. But it is incompatibility that is on the mind of our Lord in Matthew 9. Now, as we continue our study on fasting, we come to a passage on fasting in Matthew 9, 14 through 17, that we are familiar with. But I believe... We don't truly grasp the depth of its meaning. To truly appreciate our Lord's words, we must begin in verse one to understand the flow of His thinking. Let's turn to Matthew chapter nine, verse one through eight. Let's look at the healing of the paralytic. It says this: In getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Now Matthew chapter nine begins by writing about the healing of the paralytic. But the focus of the story, it's not on the man's physical healing, but rather on the fact that Jesus pronounced that the man's sins have been forgiven. You see, Jesus came to drive men to acknowledge their sin, to repent of it, and to be forgiven. And it is the hallmark of every great believer, every great follower of Jesus Christ, that they recognize their utter sinfulness. John Knox, I don't know if you heard of him, but he's perhaps the greatest preacher in the history of Scotland. And what most men would think would be a great man of righteousness. This is what he said, and I can so relate to this. In youth, in middle age, and now after many battles, I find nothing in me but corruption. The early church father Augustine, whom even today the world thinks to be a great saint and a man of righteousness, said this, Lord, save me from that wicked man, myself. If you go to the grocery store, wait in line, you'll notice the People magazine, and this week's People magazine has on it to cover the face of Valerie Bertinelli. Valerie Bertinelli. It says, how I learned to truly love myself. I mean, Could there be anything more opposite? The world's message versus the message of God. John Wesley, the father of Methodism, renowned evangelist and pastor, a worker of righteousness, wrote this, I am fallen short of the glory of God. My whole heart is altogether corrupt and abominable. Each of these three men were considered to be men of great righteousness, and yet they knew they suffered from the same terminal disease of sin they repented of it and were forgiven. There's another category of people who consider themselves to be righteous, yet do not acknowledge their sin. In Jesus' time, they were called scribes and Pharisees. And since the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day were not convinced that they were sinners, they had no desire for repentance. And accordingly, they received no forgiveness. So, what was left for them? Only a greater condemnation. Now, the first 17 verses of Matthew 9 focus on this reality. And in verses 1 to 8 that I just read to you, folks, this is the first incident in the Bible where an individual is specifically forgiven of their sins. To understand the depth of our Lord's forgiveness, just consider this. I mean, it is on display in this story, because the prevailing thought of the time was that if you're sick, it's because of your sin. Do you remember the story of Jesus and the disciples walking by the man who was born blind? And perhaps within earshot, he heard the disciples say, and these are the disciples, these are not Pharisees, these are not scribes. Why is this man blind? Who sinned? This man or his parents? That was the popular belief that if you were sick, it's because of your sin or someone else's sin. So this paralytic was not an average sinner in the eyes of the culture. In fact, his sin was so bad, that was why he was physically paralyzed. He would have lived with this stigma for years. Whether it was through accident or he was born that way. But the Lord knew this was the cry of the paralytic's heart. The forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus forgave him. The physical healing was just an added blessing. John MacArthur tells a story. And it fits so perfectly here. He says, I remember when I was finishing my senior year playing college football, I'd spoken at a Kiwanis club, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said that they knew somebody that I ought to talk to. There was a girl in the hospital. She'd been shot through the neck, and it severed her spinal cord. I should go and see her, they said, because I sounded like someone who could help her. So I went to the hospital and she was just like this man in Matthew 9 He was lying on a sheepskin in the bed and of course paralyzed from the neck down and all I could do was tell her about the Lord Jesus Christ. I talked to her for quite a long time. She told me she'd kill herself if she could. I presented Christ to her and finally when it was all done she said she wanted to invite Christ into her life. And so we prayed together. And she believed in Jesus and went back to see her several times. And one day she said to me, and I'll never forget what she said to me, I can honestly say, John, that I'm glad this happened. And I said, you mean the accident? And she said, yes. Because if it had happened, or if it hadn't happened, I never would have met Christ and had my sins forgiven. That's the deepest need that we have that was the deepest need of this paralytic now jesus proclamation that paralytic sins are forgiven naturally led to questions if he could forgive that man a sinner who else could he forgive and to what extent could he forgive and this leads us to the rest of the verses in matthew chapter 9 verses 9 to 17 and this is where we're going to find the answers to our questions Who could he forgive? To what extent could he forgive? The answer is this. Yes, he receives sinners, even the worst sinners. But he rejects the self-righteous. Matthew presents another example of the worst kind of sinner that Jesus receives, according to the Pharisees. It's none other than Matthew himself, a tax collector. Look at verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, in order to show you the extent to which God's forgiveness goes, Matthew introduces himself as the worst kind of sinner. By all the evaluation of the time, Matthew was the most wretched sinner in town. He was a publican or a tax collector. They were a breed of people who served Rome. And when Rome conquered Palestine, they wanted to exact taxes on the people. And so what they would do is certain Israelites would buy these regions and tax the people. And then the Roman government would back them up and they gave them the right to operate the taxation system in these franchises in a certain district or town. Rome then required that these tax collectors collect a certain amount of taxes. Anything above that, they could keep. And so to keep everyone happy, the Roman government and the Tax collectors, they would support these publicans or tax collectors in their excesses and in their abuses and in their oppressiveness. It was common for tax collectors to take bribes from the rich, to extort the middle class and the poor. They became hated for being traitors of the worst kind, amassing fortunes at the expense of their own oppressed countrymen. But there's even more to the vile sinfulness of a tax collector like Matthew. There were two kinds of tax collectors at that time, a general tax collector whose job was to collect the three regular taxes. You'll recognize some of these taxes. There was a land tax, which we call a property tax. There was an income tax, which we pay, and a poll tax or a registration tax. Basically, if you're alive, you're going to pay tax for being alive. And the general tax collector would add surcharges and onto the tax collections to make his own fortune. Now, Matthew was not a general tax collector. Now, he was a tax collector, but he was called was a MOKES, M-O-K-H-E-S. His job was to collect duty on everything else. And you can see where this is going. We have the same thing in our society. We pay property taxes. I wonder how many guys... I don't know if they're listening today or watching today that your property taxes went up, so your mortgage went up. We pay income taxes, but we also pay other taxes, like a sales tax. Sales tax on what you buy and the food you eat every time you fly in an airplane and so on. Do you know that there are taxes for airplanes that they pay when they land at an airport? There are boat taxes, taxes on axles, taxes on wheels, on trucks. There are road taxes. There's taxes that you pay or tolls you pay to cross a bridge. Now, these taxes were collected by a mochus, like Matthew. So he was able to collect tax on all import, all export, everything bought, everything sold, every road, every bridge. Every harbor, every town, everything. And they would even invent taxes on anything that they wanted. And you can imagine how frustrating that must have been for the people. They could put taxes on axles. The more axles you had, the more taxes you paid. Taxes on your wheels, on your pack animals. A pedestrian tax to cross a certain road or bridge. They had a market or a business tax. So if your business was selling fish... They would tax your boat, the dock where you were keeping your boat, your fish, your supplies, and so on. They would even open every package coming along the road, and they had the right to open every private letter to see if there was a business going on in that letter. If so, they could add a tax to that. The general tax collectors were despised, but the Mokis were more despised. They were unlimited in their abuses, they were oppressive, and they were unjust. Now, the Mokis, there were two kinds. The first were called the Great Mokis. They were the ones, they hired somebody to sit at the tax booth and to collect the taxes while they stayed behind the scenes because they wanted to maintain somewhat of a good or decent reputation in the community. And then there were was what the Hebrews called the small mokis. They actually sat at the tax booth themselves because they were too cheap to pay for somebody to actually sit there and collect the taxes for them. And quite frankly, they didn't care about their reputation. So it was one thing to be a general tax collector. It was another thing to be a mochis, but it was far worse to be a small mochis. And it's exactly what Matthew was. A small mochus. He was a small mochus of Capernaum. So here's Jesus in the house of Peter and his mother in Capernaum. He's done all these healings and he gets up and he goes out and he passes the tax booth and he calls Matthew. The worst man in the city in the eyes of the people. So what is the extent of Jesus' forgiveness? He forgave Matthew. And what was Matthew's response? Well, he responded immediately in obedience. Folks, he left a fortune behind, and he did just like that. And by the way, whenever you see, I believe, Matthew's name listed as a disciple It's never like there's Peter, John, James, Andrew. It's always Matthew, the tax collector, it seems like. In other words, it's Matthew, the worst sinner. In fact, Matthew's so grateful, he even throws a banquet. So two of the worst type of sinners... In the eyes of the society at that time, they responded to Jesus' offer of salvation—a cursed paralytic and a vile tax collector. Now, the last half of verse thirteen is the key to kind of understanding the whole passage. It says this: "For I came not to call the righteous, but what sinners." Now, the offer of of salvation—it's extended to all but it's only sinners who respond because the self-righteous and the religious see no need to respond. And perhaps there's no better passage of Scripture that summarizes what I'm saying than Luke 18, 9-14. Just listen to this. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, Standing by himself, prayed thus to God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me as sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The utterly devastating effects of a legalistic, self-righteous, work centered, ritualistic religion, as seen in Matthew nine, fourteen through seventeen. This is where our Lord's thoughts turn to incompatibility. It says this, And the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. I'm going to talk to you about, amongst other things, fasting and just the utter devastating effects of a works-based, ritualistic, legalistic Religious system. Now you know this that even though the New Testament only prescribed one fast a year, or the Old Testament, one fast a year, the Day of Atonement for remembrance of the people's sins, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. In our passage, we have the disciples of John, who were close to coming to belief and faith in Jesus Christ, but they were still stuck in that old religious system. Not the true Judaism of the Old Testament, but what the rabbis had invented. They were still stuck in that. And so they ask a question of, of Jesus. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Do you know what he's really saying? Why is your religion different from our religion? Now, the three major rituals or religious practices of Judaism you know what they are. We've talked about it. The giving, the fasting, the praying. This provided, folks, a religious routine that the people followed meticulously. For example, you know that they prayed three times a day. You know that they, they gave out of everything. They, they tithe even off their spices. You know, they fasted twice a week. But these external those outward rituals became the substance of their religion. They were unable to see religion as a matter of humility, sinfulness, and repentance. You see, they saw religion as a matter of ritual. And folks, so do many people today. In the Roman Catholic Church, consider this. There are people who go just for the routine of going. Some of you have a Roman Catholic background. They go through the motions of kneeling and standing and taking communion and praying the rosary and so on, but everything is external. It fails to reach the internal of the heart. This is why you cannot have a conversation with a Catholic about forgiveness, about deep repentance in the heart, and about a relationship with God because they wouldn't even know what you're talking about. All those years I spent talking to college students, sharing the gospel with them, I would regularly run into college students that had a Catholic background. And I got to the point where my heart would kind of sink when I was talking to them, because when I would ask them the questions of being and sharing the gospel with them, it became obvious to all of us that were in ministry at the time with college students they had been inoculated of the gospel. They got just enough of Jesus, heard enough of Him. They didn't want anything to do with Him. And so I'd ask them and confront them in a loving way about their sin, and yeah, they knew that they were sinful, but they had no desire to seek after God. They thought they were good because they'd been through catechism. They'd been confirmed. They had no desire for God. Occasionally I'd run into a An honest Catholic, I remember one student, a young man said to me, I am a non-practicing Roman Catholic. It was refreshing to hear that. But they had no desire, no hunger for righteousness, no desire for, for God or even for heaven. They thought they were good, which they weren't. So I was left with sharing the gospel with them and saying, if you ever get to the point where you want to just place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and not anything else that you can do, you can't earn God's favor, Here's a prayer you can pray, and leave them with the four spiritual laws. I think in all my years of ministry, one Catholic student was involved in our ministry. And I talked to hundreds, myself, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students that had gone through a Catholic church. And I, sadly, I wish, it, I wish it wasn't just in Catholic churches. It's also in Protestant churches. You know the people. They pray a brief prayer at dinner, which is the only time that they really pray during the day. They own a Bible, but they really, if ever, open it. They go to church service, they sing a song, and they go through the routines. But they don't know what it means to be convicted of sin. Again, to have that deep repentance in the heart, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Folks, look at verse 15 of Matthew 9. It says, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Do you know what our Lord is saying here in this passage? And this is a passage you really need to focus on for this week. Do you know what he's really saying here? If you go through any religious exercise, divorce from the heart. It is simply ritual And nothing more. My followers, he's saying, they have an internal, vital, real relationship with me. And what we do in that relationship is a result of what's happening now. And right now, he's saying, the bridegroom is here, the wedding is going on. You don't fast at a wedding. You celebrate instead with joy and laughter, and at a wedding you always eat food and there is wine. I am here with them, he is saying. This is not a time for fasting. But here's the point. To disciples of John, to those Pharisees and those scribes, your religion blinds you to this reality. Now there will come a time when his disciples fast. When the bridegroom is taken, it says he's taken away from them. Actually, in the, in the Greek, it's a violent snatching away. It's obvious reference to the crucifixion. But until then, what are his disciples to do? Enjoy his presence. But all of the rituals, all of the routines, and that was what these people did—the scribes, the Pharisees. Routine after routine, the praying, the giving, the fasting, the praying, the giving, the fasting. It prevented them from seeing reality. So in answering the question, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? In essence, Jesus is telling them, your religion, all those ceremonies, all those rituals, all the stuff that you Faithfully practice so that you meticulously follow, it's utterly incompatible with my teachings. You see, their religion said they were righteous, Jesus said they're vile and sinful. Their religion offered rituals, and what did Jesus offer? A relationship. Now, he uses two illustrations to further his point. And I think that some of you may find, okay, now I understand what's going on here. Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. You see, what Jesus is saying is this, there is no way that what I teach you will ever mesh with your religious system. My message is one of an internal holiness, of the heart, of a loving relationship, and it is incompatible with your external ritualistic system. And neither is new wine put into old wineskins, he says in verse 17. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. In other words... Your religious system, it won't hold this truth. It cannot contain my ministry because it is completely incompatible with your religious system. You have to abandon your self-righteousness. Abandon that external religion that's made up of all those rituals. Fully embrace a relationship with me. And you only do that when you acknowledge your sin, you repent of it, And you receive his forgiveness. Now hidden in all of this, because we're talking about fasting, believe it or not, Jesus introduces the best motive for fasting. Folks, it is only found in a loving relationship with him. Let's talk about the best motive. Let's go back to verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. We've established that when Jesus is present, this is what you really need to focus on me now, his followers do not mournfully fast. We read that. In his presence, there is fullness of joy and celebration with food. And isn't this something that we all long for, to be in his presence? We've also established that there's a time when we, his followers, will fast, when he is taken away from us. Of course, that's a reference to his crucifixion. This is a time that we are in now. So, the question of whether his followers fast, in my opinion, is definitively answered here. This is the answer to the when question of fasting. Well, when do we fast? Now. Now is the time to fast. Why? because he's been taken from us. But there's another question that is answered here. Why do we fast? And simply put, we fast because he's gone. And we long for his return so that we may be with him. That's what he's saying here. You see, fasting is a physical expression of our heart hunger for the coming of Jesus. Do you see that in the text? Now we praise him for what he accomplished at his first coming, namely the redemption of our sins, our reconciliation with God. And we even celebrate that with food every time we observe communion. And in one sense, we really experience God in all his fullness in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, when we take communion. But it is precisely because of what He did at His first coming that we also deeply feel His absence. Are you with me so far? Remember what Paul said? While we are at home in the body, we are what? Absent from the Lord. And so fasting raises this question, and these are hard things I'm going to say here, but fasting raises this question, do we really miss him? Do we really miss him? John Piper wrote a book called A Hunger for God talking about fasting and desiring God. And this is what he said, the almost universal absence of regular fasting for the Lord's return is a witness to our satisfaction with the presence of the world in the absence of the Lord. We're content with where we are. This is not the first time, mind you, we have heard Jesus' warning of a satisfaction with the world. Just before a second coming, we are warned. It will be life as usual. Luke 17, listen to this. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will be in the days of the Son of Man, i.e. when he comes again. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. The dullness of life, the normalcy of life was going on. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulphur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Life is usual. But his people, the elect, will be crying out for his return in prayer day and night. Luke 18, 7 and 8. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, his second coming, will he find faith in the earth? Will he find his people praying day and night? Again, quote John Piper, he says this, This is what is missing in the comfortable Christian church of the modern world. Where in the West do Christians cry to Christ day and night that he would come? Where is there that kind of longing and aching for the consummation of the kingdom? It is no surprise that the question of fasting for the coming of the bridegroom is scarcely asked. If the cry is not there, if the prayers aren't there... Why would one even think of expressing this longing, this hunger for him, with fasting? Longing for his return with such an intensity that it has to manifest itself with prolonged periods of prayer and fasting. It may be a radical new idea to us, but it was not new in the New Testament. In fact, It's a sign of authentic Christian faith that you long for his return. 2 Timothy 4, 7-8. Paul writes, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only for me, or not only to me, but watch this, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The best motive for fasting for the presence of God is the presence of God. I fast for his presence. I fast unto God. And I do it because I hunger for him, because I miss him, because I want to be with him. And here are a few stories of ordinary people like you and like me, who have encountered the presence of God in profound ways through fasting. This is from uh, Michael. She's a homemaker. She has several children. She writes this, The Lord was so gracious to reveal himself to me during my devotions as I was fasting. I was overwhelmed by him. Never before have I been so consistently aware of his presence. I would spend hours with him sometimes, and often I found myself weeping with emotion over my sin, with emotions I had never known. Daniel, a Florida State Trooper, he wrote this in his fast. I felt the presence of the Lord like I never had before. It was like I knew that I was in the presence of an awesome, holy God. At this, I heard the Lord say to my heart, If you will come away for 40 days and fast, I will utterly change you. How could I not say yes to such a promise from God? He writes that every day I was experiencing a sustained desire and hunger for God. Now we only hunger for someone we love. And we only love when we're in a relationship with someone. Folks, following rituals... Ceremonies, rules, regulations, routines that will never inspire such devotion. The beginning of a relationship with God starts with acknowledging your sin, then repenting of it, and receiving God's forgiveness. The beginning of a fast that is acceptable to God starts with a longing for His return that manifests itself In prayer and fasting. And we do it because we miss him so much. I pray that you're in a relationship with God and that you long for his return with prayer and fasting. And this week, I'd like for you, as you feel led, to just fast for his return. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for revealing to us these great truths in the, in the Holy Scriptures. I thank you. I praise you. I pray that you would grant us that deeper hunger for you as we seek you. I thank you for the promise that if we seek you with all of our heart, that we will find you. It is a test of our faith that we have fellowship with you. That's what we were created for. We need to be having fellowship with you. We need to long for your return. Please, the things of this world that cling to us, that we settle for, convict us to cast those aside and to find our only satisfaction in you and in your presence. May it be true of us as it was of David. They simply long to dwell in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon your beauty to experience your presence. May we desire you so much that we have to fast, that we have to pray. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.